Thanks for listening to the Pioneer Valley Church podcast. Our hope is that what you hear encourages your faith in the way of Jesus and inspires you to participate in what God is up to in the world. God bless. What is it about faces, right? Faces convey an enormous amount of information. This is why we want to see the faces. Reams of data when you see someone's face. You study their face. You're like, what are they thinking? And when you know someone really well, you can almost know what they're thinking, especially if you've lived with them for 23 years like Sylvia and I have. But our brains are hardwired, right? You're in a a crowd, and what are you looking for? A familiar face, especially if it's an unfamiliar place. Is there a familiar face? And then you you hone in on it. Oh, and then you feel relief with that familiar face. The other question we ask ourselves is, are they safe? Question I'll ask, I'll see someone, oh, is it, I don't know if I know them. Do they look safe? Or I might say, what can I deduce from their expression? What is it I can extract and, and, and read from their expression right now? So you know what I thought we would do? I thought we'd look at some faces. So let's see. We're, oh, look at this. This is a familiar face. Now, pretend you don't know Maria, and I know everyone knows Maria. Pretend you don't know Maria. So what would you say you could glean from the impression on seeing her face? She's fun. She's fun. Fun. What else? Joyful. How about mischievous? I'm thinking a little mischievous is in there. Do you feel that she's safe? What do you think she does for work? If you know, don't say it. Would you be surprised to hear that she's the Vice President of Strategic Finance and Institutional Planning at Westfield State University? I'm just throwing it out there. Not sure if you get that from that picture. All right, let's look at another face. Should we look at another face? All right, let's see who we have here. Oh, Phil Seaton. First thing I said is, handsome man. Manicured goatee. Oh, I wish. I only wish. So let's ask some some questions. Does he look trustworthy? What does his expression convey to you? Steady guy. There is a kindness about his face. Yeah. Does he feel safe? He does feel safe. What do you think you know about him? Surprised to hear that he's a computer systems engineer behind that kindness? you got to be tough. you got to really study hard, and he figured that one out. Should we look at one more, maybe? Sure. All right, we'll look at one more face. Oh. 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 Does he look safe? It looks like he's up to something. Maybe an agenda behind the agenda? Why would he not look at the camera? That was my question. I'm like, right here, eyes on me, Pat, come on, eyes on me. He's like, he's just, he's all over the place. You, know, you should know that he works for the government. That's all I'm going to say. We're going we're to move on from there. These are all my good friends of many years, some of my good friends, 
but my good friends of many years. And they are, each and every one of them, a safe place for me. And I appreciate them so much and so many others. Um, I want to introduce you to another, another face. And I want you to think about what are the feelings you have when you see this face? Just take it in. What feelings do you have? Mm. Mm. Intelligent. Creative. Some say creative. Sharp dresser. Story. An untold story. Oh, that's brilliant. Okay. Let's go. Let's go with that. What you see in his demeanor. We're going to talk about that. And what do you think you know about him? What can you deduce? I'm going to introduce you to him. This is Reginald Dwayne Betts. It was the summer of 1998. A voice called out in the hallway, send me a book. What sell? 21. At his feet appeared the black poet's works of anger and ambiguity that explained something that he knew but had never been taught. The words would free him from his cell for the few minutes that he poured over them. You see, just before Dwayne Betts turned 16, he rode with four friends to a mall in Fairfax, Virginia. In the driver's possession was a handgun. Eventually, it would be in his hand. First time he ever held a gun. He had wandered through the parking lot of the mall, find a man sleeping in a car. Get out. Give me your keys and your wallet. He'd be caught the next day, and he'd be indicted. You know, at this time, uh, federal law during this time was enacting really tough, really tough sentencing guidelines. And he'd be sentenced to nine years in adult prison. He writes these words in this article, The Years We've Lost. It made me think about a few questions. How do I view the plight of others? How do I view my own plight, and how does Jesus inform on them both? Today, we're going to talk about how love came down. Let's pray. Mighty God, Holy Father, Lord of Lords, Father, you see everything. And Father, sometimes, sometimes that's a comfort, and sometimes that feels otherwise. Father, but we want to look into your eyes this morning. We want to look into the eyes of the Savior. Help us, Father, to listen to his words, to understand why he came. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So we have a, a theme we've been going through, love came down. I want to talk about a few aspects to love came down. Uh, the idea that love lowers itself, love consumes shame, love enters in, and love faces us. We're going to be reading in John 8. We know the story, the woman caught in adultery. Many of us do. And you know, there's always a backstory behind the story. And I think that's true when we meet people and we are maybe surprised and shocked by how they come off in some way it's so important to say, 
What's the backstory? I know there's a backstory. I know there's a reason. They're not just acting this way. They're not just being rude. They're giving me what they've received. And they're unloading it to me. But let me understand there's a backstory. So there's always a backstory. In this case, before we read John, the woman caught in adultery, there is a backstory. The Pharisees had just lost round one. Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, and people began to say, I think, I think this is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. And the whispers were getting louder. Did you see? Did you hear the way he talks? Did you see what he says? It's just like what we read about, the prophecy. So the chief priests, of course, they were threatened. Pharisees were threatened. We got to do something because we are in trouble. He's eroding our authority. They sent the temple guards, which had limit, they had limited authority, but they had some, sent the temple guards to arrest him. Temple guards came back and they said, empty-handed, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Can you imagine how the Pharisees felt at that point? Right? You had one job to do. <laughs> right? With the authority eroding on their own turf, right. they were incensed. Right. So we're about to enter round two. Pharisees' goal, we got to humiliate Jesus, discredit him on some point of the law. I believe Jesus would have anticipated this. But did he avoid the temple grounds? He did not. He went right back into the ring because that's who our Savior is. A little more, little more background. This day was uh, the eighth day of a major feast, Sukkot, or the, the Feast of Tabernacles. No work was to be done on this day. No work. People are available. Crowd's going to gather. You know, there's already a Roman legion that's overseeing the temple grounds, temple courts, to prevent any mayhem or uprising. So you better believe they were ready. So let's read in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. John 8, verse 1. <clears throat> but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. <coughs> so the Pharisees unleashed their plot here, pressing him for an answer, casting shameful eyes down, trying to create urgency. You know, here's the thing, though. It's not hard to see that this woman was merely a prop in this charade because if they really cared about fulfilling the law, she wouldn't be the only one that they brought before him, would, would she? What does love do? Love lowers itself down. I was thinking, what was the effect of the lowering here? So brilliant. What was the effect of the lowering? You think about that. He's getting down, and he's doing this while everyone else is standing. All of a sudden, all the eyes are going to shift from her to him. 
and it's going to rest the crown. What's he doing? You know, the etiquette or, or what they expect is he's going to answer the question. Yep. No, he's not. He's going to act like he doesn't even hear them. Mm. And he's going to draw all the eyes to himself. By lowering himself, he's going to create space. By lowering himself, all eyes are going to turn to him. By lowering himself, he's going to absorb her shame. What became clear about the Pharisees is they were so concerned about justice that they missed out on mercy. They wanted to fortify their position by publicly humiliating Jesus. They needed to discredit him. That was their agenda. In responding to this ploy... What were Jesus' options? They figured, oh, he's only got two options. Stoner or capitulate. Just, you know, say, oh, let's let her off the hook. We're, we're going to just make a concession. Now, if he says stoner, we got the Roman legion there. They're not going to allow that. They don't have the authority to do that. He's going to get arrested and anyone else that participates in that. Done deal. If he says, oh, no, let's make a concession, you know, we're occupied, we, we don't have the authority. He'd be discredited, considered a compromiser, and a coward. Add this to the backdrop, the age-old debate about justice, the nature of justice. Was it to be primarily retributive? Is justice primarily about the strict application of the law? Does that accomplish its ends? What was the heart of the law? How should it be fulfilled? I love this next part because he gives them an object Object lesson like, like no other. Jesus shows them, first of all, that he knows the law because when he gets down to writing the dirt, no work can be done, but when you write in the dirt, it's not permanent work, so it's okay to do that. You can get away with that. So he's like, I know the law. I'm not doing work. However, however, pay close attention because maybe the very finger of God is conveying a message to you, like in Daniel 5, 5 with the writing on the wall. And then he rises to announce the method of execution. Words that would slice through the thick air of the crowd. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Utter silence, just like now. Utter silence, mm -hmm. words hanging in the air. Mm -hmm. Let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, or for us, at him, or at them, or at those people. Counter-strike, mic drop, checkmate. The love that lowered itself. Jesus combined qualities that no one could ever imagine. He was accessible to the weakest and the most broken, yet completely fearless before those with perceived power. He presented with unhesitating authority, yet with a complete lack of self-absorption. He was tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence. He is love, Lord. You know, the normal human response, after a jaw-dropping, riddle-me-this response that really laid them down to the ground by mere words, might be to be like, pull one of these, or one of these, 
or told you, but that's not what he does, is it? Let's pick up in John, John 8 in verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Why the second lowering? I hadn't thought about this until I was studying this out. Tables have turned. Jesus is in control now. He's in absolute control. In an instant, he presses everyone to make an accountable decision. In an instant, he puts a name and a face on everyone in the crowd. His opponents are now under extreme pressure to show, answer the question, are you without sin? Are you better? But what would Jesus do? He would give them space. He would say, I'm not taking names. I'll absorb your shame. I'm not going to look up at you. You're free to go. And I'm not going to shame you. And I'm not going to gloat. And I'm not going to rub your faces in it. I'm going to create space. We see each one goes away, beginning with the older ones. First. Defeated, humiliated. By looking at the ground, he shows he's not taking names. Love provided a way out, both for the accusers and for the accused. Love doesn't take a victory lap. Love covers shame. So what does this mean for each one of us? How can we relate? You know, only one would remain with Jesus. Only one would have an extended audience with him. It would be the one who was caught who is facing publicly their sin in utter humiliation. It's hard enough to talk to one person about what's going on in your life, much less people that don't care about you necessarily, and you're out publicly with your sin. How crushing is that? But she would remain, and she wouldn't find condemnation. She would find forgiveness. The accused the one caught would have an extended audience with the Savior. She would behold his face. She would behold his face and say, I am safe with him. He tells me what he's truly thinking. I've thought about that a lot. Do I say what I'm truly thinking? Or do I avoid it because I'm worried about how they might, they might feel, which is really I'm worrying about how I might feel by how they might feel, so I avoid the conflict. Right, right, right. He tells me what he's truly thinking. He values and defends me despite my shortcomings. His love has come down on me. Pharisees had an agenda, and their agenda was upended. Did he tell them to leave? He didn't ask them to leave. He just called them to make an accountable decision for how they saw themselves and how they perceived God's justice. These are the big questions. They were unable to be released from what they perceived as the right way, the right cause. They wanted to affirm what they were familiar with. 
That's exhausting. They were fighting against God. In his final words, Jesus, is, Jesus neither condemns nor overlooks her sin. He walks the razor's edge. We'll come to this one in just a moment. He walks the razor's edge between the two. Neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. May we say this to each other. May we say this to ourselves. That may be the hardest one. But the measure you use will be measured to you. That's why God says if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven because you're using the same measure. You've got to be able to measure out forgiveness to others if you're going to measure it to yourself. May we say this to each other ourselves because Jesus says this to us. Dwayne Betts would explain to the bookstore owner where he was applying for a job, I just came home from prison. He'd say the same to the coordinator of the honors program at Prince George's Community College. Yes, I was convicted of a felony, he told the admissions officer at Howard University. A carjacking, he wrote in his application to Yale Law School. Prison, inmate, felon. Betts writes, why pretend these words don't seize our breath and thus rob us of our humanity? In the words of Richard Schindel from his song Transit, it's a song about a nun who has a choir at, at a prison and she's traveling there and she's trying to get there on time. And I thought this really brought things out. If she hurried, she might not be late for that evening's performance at the state penitentiary. There was her choir, altos, baritones, basses and tenors, car thieves, crack dealers, mobsters and murderers, husbands and sons, fathers and brothers. Some people have done heinous things, but by cleverness or pure chance, they don't have a record of it. Never caught in the act. No captions that they carry through the rest of their life. Others may be caught for something more minor, only to be branded with a judgment that they'll carry far beyond the prescribed punishment. We can be those, though, who perpetuate the judgment. Once this, always this. May we be like Jesus in saying, neither do I condemn you. Let not one detail that we learn about someone's life rob them of their humanity. Love lowers itself to meet others' eyes. And we need to look into each other's eyes. We need to study each other's faces. And we need to pause. And we may need to create space, however that is, so that we can suspend and not react. And know there's a backstory as I'm interacting with this person. There's a backstory as this person's giving me a hard time. There's a backstory for that person who's racing down the road and I'm feeling, you know, at risk by their driving. There's a backstory. And only when we think about that can we have a forgiving, compassionate heart. More than two decades later, Dwayne Betts would receive his JD, Juris Doctor, the highest degree you can achieve in any given discipline from Yale Law. He would also be appointed by President Obama to the Coordinating Council on Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. 
he would use all his power of position to intervene for others. Why did he come? Why did Jesus have to come? Why did he have to enter history, be put to death, die a thief's death? Why did he have to die at all? Because love lowers. Love enters to set others free. We're going to look in Hebrews chapter 2. Turn with me. Oh, that says 10, but it's actually Hebrews 2. Uh, go to Hebrews 2, but it is verse 10. It's amazing, like you go over something, you edit, you edit, you edit, and you're like, ah, okay. <laughs> Keeps you humble. Okay, so we're in Hebrews 2. Oh, look, I just turned to Hebrews 10. Look at that. And I even have a marker. <laughs> All right, Hebrews, uh, where are we? Two. Hebrews 2, thank you. And what verse? Oh, great. Thank you. Okay, excellent. Maybe someone should just read it for me. No, I'll read it. All right. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I'll declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help us. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Linda Webb and I were discussing this over Thanksgiving, thinking about the, this verse and the article. And she said, it tells us the extent to which God has gone to let us know we are completely understood by him. For he shared in our humanity. He allowed himself to be contained in a carnal body in order to fully reach us. And free us. Dwayne Betts went to law school to become a public defender. In prison, he would meet many, like himself, young kids that were imprisoned. Ventress, names like Juvie, Luke, Marquise, and Anthony. He began to visit the Virginia Parole Board, compiled petitions. He helped Ventress get out. He helped Juvie get out. He helped Star and Luke get out, and he's fighting for Marquise and Anthony. Compassion, empathy mobilizes him, for he too was in their world. You know, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you've been freed. Jesus has gone before you. Jesus lowered himself on your behalf and showed you how to do the same. Love always lowers. Love is not quick to judge. Love pursues, love intervenes, love protects. 
Love understands you completely because love was embodied. Love came down and experienced this life. If you're thinking about responding to Jesus, know that he's cleared the way for you. He wants to draw any shame into himself. He wants to draw all eyes to himself. He wants to absorb it. He desires to connect with you where you're at and to cleanse you from all that is past. The key in all of this is what? The key is to remain with Jesus. The key is to keep our eyes on Jesus. The key is to listen to his words. Because only in him, through him, are we set free from all that is past. And only in him can we release others. As we conclude, I want to think about how often we want Jesus to revolve around our agenda. How often we have an idea on how we think things should go. How justice should be set out out and dispensed. Jesus coming down into the Pharisees' world was a disruption. If we're to follow him, we're going to experience disruption. An upending of values and drivers of our lives. We must first and foremost let go of our agenda our expectations, what we believe he should be or how the situation should be. At great cost, he fanned the flame of their hostility and drew it all to himself, all the while not seeking to revel in their defeat. The woman, she was the recipient of Jesus' costly demonstration of unexpected love. This saved her life. This is the gospel. This is love lowered. This is love that came down. 